You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, welcome back. You know, the news of continued book banning, continued uh, uh, terror about drag shows, we've talked about that. And now, of course, it's expanded to wrap its ugly arms around higher education. So once again, I've asked Jeremy Young, the senior manager of Penn's Free Expression and Education Program, back to help us, first, to help us just know the facts about what's going on, but also then to help us understand it and, and help us understand just how we can think about this. So Jeremy, welcome. Thanks, Edwin. It's always a pleasure to be here. But, you know, I, I always hope that someday we'll be on one of these calls and we'll just we'll just be talking about how good everything is. Uh, and unfortunately, today isn't one of those days, but maybe someday. No, someday we can just uh, uh, share a book and talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> that, that would be great. That would be fabulous. Well, so uh, bring bring us up to speed on sort of the latest in this coordinated attack on thought. Sure. So there's a lot of things that have been going on in the last month. Um, I'll start with the higher education background. Um, you know, it looks like we're about to have uh, the most draconian and censorious higher education bill uh, passed in, in, in anyone's living memory. Uh, HB 999 in Florida is set for uh, the governor's signature. Uh, it would uh, and will, as I assume it will take effect, uh, will restrict uh, all sorts of um, aspects of university governance, including uh, general education curricula, mission statements, uh, DEI offices, tenure, all all you know subject to the whims of politicians or political appointees. There's a similar bill that's continuing to advance SB 17 uh, in uh, Texas. Um, there's a bill in uh, you know, that bill could become law by the end of the month. Uh, there's a bill in Ohio SB 83 that would do similar things. Unclear whether that. Uh, bill has traction, but uh, certainly we're about to see a new wave of restrictions on higher education that is far beyond anything we've seen before, far beyond the anti-critical race theory educational gag orders. And now we're talking about restricting really the ability of universities to operate, uh, you know, as as uh, as self-governing entities. Then there's this. Are the book hang on, Jeremy. One question about that. Is this for any university that has real estate in the state or is it focused on state universities? Uh, so far, these have been uh, focused entirely on uh, on public universities in the state, okay. um, universities okay. and colleges. Uh, the Ohio bill in its initial version would have applied <laughs> to private universities as well, but that has been removed in the most recent subject. Okay. Thank you. Keep going. I'm sorry for the interruption. Sure. Uh, all right. So then we got the book bans, uh, and certainly there's a lot more uh, to talk about there. Uh, you know, we, we released a new report on this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's called, uh, as as all of our book bans are, uh, it's called uh, Banned in the USA. Uh, this one's the subtitle is State Laws Supercharge Book Suppression in Schools. And supercharge really is the true story here. You know, these th- there has been an additional... Uh, 28% increase in book bans in this past six months uh, compared with uh, any either of the two quarters uh, before that. Uh, over the last 18 months, we've seen over 4,000 instances of book banning in 37 states around the country. And what we're starting to see now, you know, as always, uh, there are a lot of books being banned, over-representation of banned books that affect uh, LGBTQ identities, uh, black or African-American identities or discuss issues of race. 
But we're now starting to see books be banned. Uh, you know, the, the, these, these what we call wholesale bans, entire collections of books uh, summarily removed from shelves uh, to be reviewed on some sort of long time scale, could be months or years before they're even considered for return. And in many cases, these bans are applying to uh, subject matter that, uh, you know, any basically that, that touches on any sort of difficult issues, violence, tragedy. You know, anything that things that actually happen in children's lives that they need to, to be able to process through the, 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 the matter of literature, you know, being removed wholesale from libraries. So this is not something that is dying down. It's something that's escalating. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're continuing to document it. And Jeremy, I understand that when um, when citizens push back and say, no, don't ban the books in our libraries. <clears throat> and when it looks like they're going to win that fight. States, these, these, uh, I don't know what to say, power mad legislators, mad at any rate legislators are doing, are, are instead saying, okay, we can't ban the book. We're just going to defund the libraries. So that's happening. Uh, we're seeing that the, these uh, library defunding bills and measures appearing in pu- around public libraries around the country. Yep. Haven't seen one of these uh, actually close a library uh, before, um, but we there is a library in Michigan that is scheduled to close in a year if they if they don't uh, raise additional funds to keep it open. Uh, the legislature in Missouri came very close to banning uh, all funding for libraries in the in in you know the next budget. Uh, we've seen this in school districts and. Texas and Oklahoma and other states, uh, you know, this is there is a sense uh, that is brewing among uh, some conservatives that libraries are sites of indoctrination rather than sites of what they actually are knowledge and, and of the availability of knowledge and understanding you, know, you can read any book you want in a library um and the idea that libraries need to be banned that they need to be censored that they're some kind of liberal indoctrination factory is ridiculous but that's what we're starting to see around the country um yeah and libraries are also for anybody who's been in one lately uh, more than places to borrow books they're places um where where people gather um uh, for, uh, I don't know, all kinds of things, whether it's um, they go there to vote or they go there. Um, uh, sometimes there are food drives out of libraries. I mean, they become such powerful community centers because they are a space, sort of a public-owned safe space in communities that can be used by citizens in all kinds of ways to make their community stronger. That's exactly right. You know, libraries, uh, public libraries, one of the things uh, you often see in public libraries is job fairs for people who are having trouble getting a job. As you said, food drives, uh, you know, community gathering places. There are a vanishing number of places in our increasingly polarized country where you can go and uh, talk with people who think differently from you and learn ideas that are different from yours and really be in a space where a community can gather no matter what people the, the views of the members of that community are uh, and, and share a sense of community. And libraries and schools uh, and colleges are some of the few places where that remains true. And it's not a surprise, Edwin, that those are the places that are being targeted for bans that are being accused of indoctrination, because for the people making these accusations, the idea that people who have different views from theirs could be welcome in a space uh, represents indoctrination. And so they want to ban anything that isn't an echo chamber for their own set of views. Uh, th- yeah, there's no, there's no, um, 
there's nothing in our history that helps me understand this. There is in other countries, but nothing here that is so deeply disturbing as this. You will think my way or you will be obliterated is a, is an unusual, just not in our history. We don't have that in, in, uh, in, you know, in, on this continent. Um, uh, except, you know, maybe the way Native Americans were treated. Um, we just don't have it. And it's, um, it's a terrible shock, but you've, you've laid out a lot of stuff. So let's dig into it a little bit and let's go back to higher ed where you, where you began. Um, for me, higher ed is both a complicated and a simple topic. I mean, institutions like state universities, I, I know this because I used to work in them. They are large organizations with diverse missions and all sorts of financial and management challenges. They're really very complicated organizations, but all of them are at, at, at their heart places of curiosity and discovery. And all of them stand on the bedrock foundation of intellectual freedom, intellectual freedom, the ability to think differently than anybody's thought before and to pursue your curiosity where the facts and your research take you. Um, y- y- you've, this is under, this is what's under assault. That bedrock is what's under assault and the institutions will crumble without it. So, I mean, I've already heard faculty members talking about leaving Florida and new faculty saying, I'm, I'm not going to Florida. I mean, I, uh, the impact, when do employers who value what students learn at universities, when do they stand up and say to the, the right wing, this is going to be terrible for the American economy, let alone the American soul. That's a really good question. You know, a couple of things I want to respond to there, uh, Edwin. First, you know, the, in terms of the history, I mean, there have been other moments in our history when we've seen this kind of uh, it, it totalizing censorship. Certainly the McCarthy era uh, and the loyalty oaths that the teachers and college professors were required to sign in, in many states mm-hmm. around the country. Um, you know, some of the things that happened in, the, in Jim Crow America, certainly, you know, some of the things that happened before the Civil War. There is precedent for this, uh, but it's certainly not good precedent. Uh, you know, this is these are not moments. That, no, it, I, I say this all the time, and, and I, I wish I could make everyone who wants to ban a book understand this or who wants to restrict, regulate a, a college or university understand this. Uh, there, there are no examples in history of people who are censors looking good in history to the people who come after them. Not one. It never happens. You know, there, there's, <laughs> once people come to their senses, they realize this is such a terrible idea. We simply shouldn't do it. Uh, so, yeah, we have precedent for this, but it's, it's precedent that tells us just what a terrible idea this is. Now, okay, good correction. Yeah, good. Sure. Now, now in terms of uh, colleges and universities, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, you're you're right to mention the other countries as an example. Uh, There is a direct parallel with what is going on in Florida under what's now SB 266 or HB 999, uh, this this bill that's going to, you know, take away autonomy from universities to uh, something that happened in Hungary 
uh, in with the Central European University in 2018. Uh, very similar proposals down to similar wording. Uh, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, if a university is going to exist in the country, it's going it, to, its inner workings are going to be dictated by the government. And ultimately, the government of Hungary chased that university out of Hungary altogether. We've seen similar bans uh, on universities or, or higher ed uh, institutions in Poland, in Russia, in China, in Brazil. And, you know, it, it, it's important, I think, for your listeners to understand that, you know, higher education, in order for higher education to be a space of intellectual freedom and open inquiry, it needs to be, uh, there needs to be a level of insulation from political control. Legislatures do have some role in the governance of the university, largely through the budgeting process. But what is happening here is a, a regime of micromanagement that would allow legislators to directly or indirectly control every aspect of the governance of, 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 of a college or university. And what that means is that a faculty member or a student, you know, I'm reading this bill in Ohio that actually mandates punishments for students who would, uh, who, who violate uh, what they call diversity rights as determined by some administrator or legislator. You know, the, what that means is that if you are, are a stakeholder at that school, if you're a teacher, an administrator, a student, you're going to be watching what you say every second of every day, because you know that the legislature, the governor, uh, you know, big brother is going to come in and punish you for saying or doing the wrong thing. So it's vitally you know, important that universities have this level of insulation, and yet we see a systematic effort to break it down. And yes, it is affecting faculty. It is affecting employment prospects. These universities are going to suffer. And I don't say that with any with any, you know, happiness uh, at all, um, you know, we, the, but we're seeing, you know, at New College of Florida, which uh, the governor is turning into a sort of petri dish of all the bad ideas that are being proposed around the country for regulating higher ed. You know, they're having a lot of trouble filling uh, their admissions quotas. They're losing huge numbers of their faculty and staff. Uh, you know, this is going to happen all over Florida. It's going to happen in any state that enacts bills like this. And it is going to devastate the economies and the knowledge uh production in those states. I, the only thing I can think of like, you know, like this, when, when the government really large sections of the government went after universities systematically um, through both students and faculty, you mentioned Hungary, but Maoist China comes to mind in the cultural revolution. I mean, I, I was in China in the 1990s and I was, helping schools think about business education, which they needed desperately. And I recall being asked to leave, um, uh, not leave the country, just leave the room, because the party uh, members wanted to come and have a conversation with the faculty about what they could and could not talk about. Um, and, and needless to say, after that, the conversation was very, it was a very quiet conversation because nobody wanted to say anything or think anything uh, out loud, at least after the party said, you know what, it's really up to us. And that's what's going on here. That's absolutely right. I mean, that's a great comparison. And the truth is, you know, authoritarians around the world are afraid of the kind of open conversation and, and open intellectual debate that happens in colleges and universities. So every authoritarian state that has ever existed has wanted to regulate or dismantle universities. And I would say to the people who want to regulate and dismantle universities in the United States today, you know, what do you think your models are here? Do, do, do you really, I mean, I'm not going to say they're authoritarian, but they're, they're, they're saying it for me through their actions. 
You know, why, why are these the models, Maoist China, authoritarian Hungary, you know, Putin's Russia, why are these the models that you are looking to follow in determining, you know, how you're going to handle and interact with colleges and universities in this country? Why not follow the, the great democratic models we have in our own society for allowing and encouraging, uh, you know, intellectual diversity and, and, in, and open inquiry in colleges and universities? Well, I, I'm afraid I'm going to ask you to answer that question because it's important that we understand who we're dealing with and what they're losing um, in doing this. I mean, why are they following this model? What is it? I mean, because the output of universities, I know students say ridiculous things sometimes, um, and students can be intolerant sometimes. Um, but when they grow up, the, the benefit of having been in college is They've been remarkably productive members of our of our society, both um, in, in their civic engagement, but also uh, American um, American industry. I mean, when you think of, well, I don't know, well, you know, I take uh, Google or Facebook or Amazon or any of the enormous companies th- that have been created in the last few years. They're all created by people who, I don't know, went to college, got a good education, even take big legacy businesses. Old General Motors has had a rebirth in part because of people who got a good education, went to college. The idea that we now think education is a bad thing, it's hard to imagine an industry we could lead in in any way if we don't have the kind of education system that produces people who can think. I think it's pretty clear where this is coming from. You know, if you if you look at uh, the way that the the realignment in our elections over the last decade has progressed, there is more of a split now by education level between the parties than there ever has been in our history. You know, there the there there is a, a sense that you know not only are college professors overwhelmingly liberal, which has been true since the 1960s and maybe before that, uh, but also that you know people with college uh, education are more likely to vote for one party than they are to vote for the other. Um, and that has led to an absolute cratering of support for higher education as a democratic institution uh, among many voters on the right. You know, there, there are these, these Pew polls from 2019 that say that only 33% of self-identified conservatives, you know, think that, that uh, colleges and universities have any benefit for American society. And we're not talking about the, the, the sort of controversial humanities departments here. We're talking about the engineering school, the nursing school, you, you know, the, the business uh, college of business. Um, you know, every part of the university, you know, there, there is a, an increasing desire to, to use it as a weapon uh, and to burn it to the ground if that's what, uh, you know, is necessary to sort of win this political battle. So universities are getting caught in the crosshairs of this, uh, of our partisan society, our polarized society. And the solution to this, of course, is is not to destroy universities. The solution is to diversify universities. You know, we do need more viewpoint diversity on campus among students, among faculty, among policies. You know, there, there, this is this is good to, to, to encourage, uh, you know, free expression education. We we you know, we're, we're on the front lines of doing that all over the country. Um, but when, you know, it, it, you see people increasingly interested in just destroying the institutions wholesale rather than trying to transform them, rather than trying to reform them uh, from within uh, or handing these institutions over to politicians as their personal playthings, uh, 
you know, that is not a solution. That is pure destruction of, of a key component of American democracy. Yeah. And I want to ask you a little bit more about the reform question. Um, on every big campus, uh, every supposedly liberal campus, conservative speakers come and speak and their students sometimes are ill behaved and we hear about it all the time. Right. And they become arguments about free speech on campus. You could you tell me, because I don't know this, are are, are speakers like me ever invited to Liberty University, to some of the right wing uh, institutions of higher ed that America has? Are, are, are we ever platformed there in the same way? I think it happens from time to time. And look, I, okay. I think that this 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 concern about. Uh, you know, liberal conservative speakers being shouted down on college campuses is a legitimate concern. You know, we've argued this. So do I. We put so out statements regularly, uh, you know, denouncing these kinds of, 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 you know, uh, co- attacks on speakers. We had a statement just a few months ago, uh, going after, uh, you know, university for allowing, uh, the anti-trans speaker Riley Gaines to be literally chased, uh, through the hall, physically attacked. Uh, after her speech on a campus, uh, we had a statement just last week uh, defending the right of John Saylor of the National Association of Scholars to speak at a medical school in Wisconsin uh, where his speech had been canceled. You know, we make these 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 cases, you know, as, as strongly as almost anybody in the country. Um, the, the, the problem is when you jump from, oh, look, here's a problem to let's burn down the university. Let's Give politicians total control of everything that's happening. Universities, you know, can't be can't be guided. They can't be supported in making these these changes that need to be made. Instead, we need to burn things down. You know, that's where the real problem kicks in. I think. Alec, I am a left leaning guy. Have been my whole life. I'm not sure I'm way to the left, but left leaning. But I've always thought that the realm of politics um, has got to stay somewhat contained. It can't wrap its arms around everything. You can't use politics as the only lens with which to see the world. If you do, you're guilty of what has this name for a reason, totalitarian thinking. Like And, and um, universities are certainly one area where, and, and then, by the way, so is a lot of American business. Just like do your thing, right? And not be subject to the political aims of people who are having that conversation about which policy paths to take the government down. Well, and I think it, I think there is a serious problem here of politically motivated micromanagement. I think that's part of what we're seeing as well. You know, I've, I've been having some conversations with some folks on the right lately about this question. And they say, you know, when I say DEI offices uh, shouldn't be banned by state law at universities and they say, well, do you think it would be all right if a university created an office of economic freedom that was, uh, you know, conservative leaning? And I say, yes, of course, of course, <laughs> the university decide, you know, this, this is the this is the job of of, of the university community. You know, one thing that, that is not necessarily always well known is universities make these decisions in a collaborative process called shared governance. You know, the, the trustees have the final say, and the president has a lot of say. But ultimately, all stakeholders at the university, including the faculty senate, the student government, the staff senate, uh, you know, various administrative bodies, 
you know, they, they all weigh in when these decisions are made about departments to be created and offices to create, be created and what needs to get support and what, what doesn't. You know, this is a collaborative, deliberative process. And the idea that all of that should be superseded by, by a, a state legislature that knows nothing about what's happening on these campuses except a, a few, uh, you know, crazy stories from other states, uh, that that state legislature is going to come in and, and override everything that's happened on that campus and open and close departments, rewrite mission statements, determine general education. That's preposterous. And it's enormously destructive to higher education institutions. And so now they are going after the accreditors, right? Because accrediting in universities is a also a collaborative effort. They form organizations of schools to accredit schools. Yes. Um, accreditors. So here's how the accreditation system uh, works in the United States. There are seven uh, so-called regional accreditors. Uh, they uh, basically six accreditors that accredit, you know, uh, four year colleges and one that accredits uh, two year colleges. Uh, they used to be based in uh, in regions of the country. A recent rule change has made it so that any uh, school can seek accreditation from any of the seven as appropriate. Um, they are, you know, they are nonpartisan, nonprofit organizations that evaluate uh, universities and colleges and maintain basic standards of quality. And uh, their, you know, the, the accreditation from one of these. Uh, accrediting bodies is required for uh, students at a school to receive federal student financial aid, which uh, 83% of students in the country receive. So most colleges with, uh, you know, Hillsdale and a couple of other private exceptions uh, can't function without accreditation. They cease to exist. Um, And, you know, there, it's a very fair, deliberative process, and it, it's, a, it's an important process because without accreditation, there's no difference between a reputable college that is providing a quality education and a diploma mill like uh, some of the for-profit colleges that have set up their own fake accreditors uh, that, are, <laughs> that, that just rubber stamp everything they do. Um, so predictably, we're seeing opportunities, you know, it, uh, you know, moments where you know, the gover- uh, legislators, uh, largely on the right, are trying to shut down accreditation. They're trying to make those fake accreditors uh, as, as, as valuable as, as real accreditors, you know, all, all of these sort of restrictions on accreditation. And, you know, I had a very interesting conversation a few weeks ago with uh, someone who uh, used to run a for-profit college. Uh, and he told me that he was fully supportive of the work we were doing on this because he said, you know, for-profit colleges don't want this. They don't want uh, public education to be undermined for their benefit, they just want to be treated the same as everyone else. And, you know, the, the last thing they, they look at restrictions being aimed at, at, you know, at, at public colleges like HB 999 in Florida, they think it's only a matter of time before it comes for them too. So yeah, these, these accreditors, uh, you know, this is a real, it's a real significant development. Do you want to take any time and tell everybody about the effort that Penn has been part of to, push back and uh, um, help make people aware of what's going on? 
Absolutely. So uh, Pan America launched last last month. We're coming up on the one month anniversary of this tomorrow, uh, an initiative that we have called the Champions of Higher Education. And this is an initiative uh, of, of over 200 college and university presidents and, and system heads, retired college and university presidents and system heads from all over the country. These folks represent uh, institutions in 47 states plus D.C. We're hoping to, to track down the, the, the last three states uh, pretty quickly here. Uh, and you know, these numbers continue to grow every week. Uh, and what these uh, retired former you know, college leaders uh, are going to do, you know, they've all signed a statement of purpose indicating their support for, uh, you know, for the independence of higher education, for, you know, the, the end of attempting you know, legislative attempts to regulate what is happening in college classrooms and curricula and governance. Um, they also, you know, have committed to take this show on the road, quite literally. Uh, you know, they will be uh, speaking and writing in their home communities where they have the most influence. They'll be helping us build a national network of supporters to further this effort. Um, and, you know, they are... It, it, it is really what we have done here is we've brought together a whole new collection of people who are very well respected around the country, who have, who know more about colleges and universities than almost anyone alive, and whose uh, whose role it is in the, through this Champions of Higher Education initiative to be on the front lines and promote um, you know an affirmative vision of higher education as a central pillar of American democracy. And that's what they're going to be doing. We've recently added some staff to help, uh, you know, support their efforts going forward. Um, and we're just going to, you know, over the next few months, you'll, you'll hear a lot more about this initiative going forward. Yeah. And as much as American democracy is sort of the core of what I fight for, these universities are central to American competitiveness, to American innovation, um, to uh, public health because of the amazing work they do in in uh, biosciences. Um, uh, I, I, so much of our national well-being is tied up in the work of higher ed, far more than most people realize. That's absolutely right. I mean, you know, I, I tell people, uh, I used to teach at a, at a, a college in, in rural Utah, uh, at which, you know, in a very red community. Um, and actually, I, I've only ever taught at colleges in red communities. Uh, it's been kind of a hallmark of my teaching career. Uh, you know, and, and the, the, the community leaders there were very supportive of this college because they said this is a college that brings, uh, you know, innovation. It brings jobs. It brings, uh, you know, technical advancements. It brings uh, business opportunities. You know, they really valued the nursing school, which uh, provided, you know, medical uh, personnel for the community. Um, you know, this is a college, they said, that brings, uh, you, you know, uh, cultural offerings to, to, to a place that didn't have a lot uh, before the college was in place. Um, you, you know, this, you, you really, you know, colleges play a very, very crucial role in communities all around the country. Um, yeah. you know, they are a vital part of that, that community life. Uh, they are valuable to people who who would never even set foot on the college in terms of the connections that they that they create, you know, the opportunities that they create for everyone. You know, the community engagement is a central and growing role of colleges and universities. And, you know, people who want to destroy these institutions don't understand just how important they are to, to Main Street America all over the country. Jeremy, I want to change the subject a little bit in the time we have left. And about that, I'm so interested in what you had to say. I blew through a commercial break, so we have to end a little bit early uh, for us to get caught up. But in the time we have left, I, I want to understand 
how the your efforts and others can give people the courage, the courage to fight when a state is uh, uh, using all its power against them. And here I'm thinking of the news that I've heard that perhaps the college board and perhaps major textbook publishers have made more significant concessions to demands from conservative states to rewrite their texts than we knew. And I I, I think that... um, First am I right in that? I think I read that last week that, that we were learning more you know, about the concessions made. And and if I am right, true. how do we give people the courage to stand up to to a very powerful state force? Well, the latest news on this actually is that the College Board uh, has has reversed itself again and is now adding some teeth back to the curriculum in part because <laughs> of the protest from from people like your listeners all around the country. You know, this so so the the truth is, you know, this is another thing we're we're hearing this on book bans as well. You know, that there's a lot of the books, you know, some of the books that 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 were banned last year are back on the shelves. Why are they back on the shelves? Because people complained because people fought for those books. Um, and you know, of course, bans have continued. That's not going to. It's not stopping. You know, new new attacks uh, coming against you know these educational institutions. But the the truth is that these these attacks on education are deeply unpopular. You know, they're even unpopular in places where they're they are being approved easily by legislatures um, in florida for instance uh you know De- desantis is very popular but his attacks on education very unpopular the voters aren't going to vote him out over it but they don't agree with what he's doing so the, the you know we are coming here from a position of strength and we need to see ourselves that way and we need to recognize that the difference the reason that these efforts are succeeding is because the minority of americans who want to censor and silence our schools and our educators and our students uh, are taking it more seriously than the majority of us who don't. Um, and we have to get out there and speak up and speak out and you know put our words on the line uh, and make sure everyone we know is, is ad- ad- activated on this, is fighting these bans with everything they've got everywhere in the country. And when we start to see real consequences emerging for you know lawmakers who who do go forward and try to ban educational institutions that is when you will see a shift in the entire discussion about this nationwide so there is nothing more important to do than to than to talk uh, and emphasize and prioritize this issue and do everything you can uh you know to to defend the freedom to read and to learn and to teach so let me take a minute for those of you who are listening when, when this is not your issue, your issue is uh, a woman's right for reproductive choice, also something that has majority support, but a powerful minority is taking it, that right away from you all over the country. Th- there are coalitions to be formed around issues that matter because the same folks who want to ban the books are the ones who don't care about climate change, are the ones who don't care about the right to choice. There's a collection of issues that creates one of the biggest and most powerful coalitions America's ever seen that should be able to clean this mess up. But we cannot do it if we are complacent or if we stay in our lane or if we focus on only one issue and don't pay attention to our neighbors who care about this other one. And we have to see the connections between them. We just have to see it. That's a really inspiring message, and I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I don't have anything to say. That was great. Well, Jeremy, um, 
a completely different last question. You spend all your time in the trenches, you know, date your, your inbox must be filled with like one outrage after another. How do you, how, how do you get through the week? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I, I, um, I just think about all the success that we've had, you know, the, this champions of higher education initiative, the statements we've organized, uh, you know, opposing these, these bills from leading higher education, uh, organizations, you know, we, we put out a resource guide with the American council on education, uh, for, you know, responding to these attacks on academic freedom that's being used all around the country, uh, you know, in higher education institutions, we have, you know, really moved the needle in, uh, you know, how book bans are being discussed in this country and how seriously people are taking them. You know, I, I, I look at history and I think about how all of these censorious movements die eventually. And I think we've made real progress toward, uh, you know, putting this one, you know, into the dustbin of history, but we're definitely not there yet. It's going to be a hard, hard slog and a long slog. Um, and, you know, we'll be right there with you the rest of the way. Well, that I mean, really good to know, because, you know, we can sometimes um, confuse feeling good because we found a lot of people who share our point of view from winning and feeling good is not the same thing as winning, but understanding that we aren't in this alone, that there are so many people who are with us is part of winning. And what you're telling me is, uh, as you've seen movements like this come and disappear over time, the first and important step in shifting from defense to offense is to identify all the people who are pissed off with you. That's right. And I think we've made a lot of progress here. You know, we have we have dozens of organizations in the higher ed space that are fighting for this. We used to, you know, two years ago, it was two or three in the book banning space. There's a national coalition coming to fight all this. You know, yeah, this the organizing effort here is really growing. So I would just leave your listeners with this. You know, if we, you know, talk to your neighbors, talk to your friends and family. Uh, there is a lot of support out there for your position, even in the reddest of, of, of places in America. And, you know, just just go out and find allies that, that you can use to amplify your own voice. Yeah. And start a book club. Invite people over and read a book. <laughs> I, yeah. Read one of the banned ones. Some of them are good ones. <laughs> Jeremy, as always, it's great to talk. I disagree with you. And, That's uh, right. You know, have them read the banned books, too, and see if it's, you can change your mind. Yep, yep. All right, it's great to talk with you. I'm going to end a little early because I say we ran through a commercial break, which I was uh, my bad. But it was just so interesting. So thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you.